What would you say if someone came up to you this week and they said, hey, you know, I really love your pastor. I love your pastor over there at Gospel Life. He's a really good guy. You would say, yeah, he is. He's a really good fella. And then what if they say, yeah, yeah, he is. And man, I'm, I'm really jealous of his thick hair and his tan skin. Man, he's got great hair and skin. What would you say then? You would say, uh, I think you've got the wrong pastor. <laughs> I think you're thinking of the wrong guy. Right? Now, this kind of thing happens all the time when I'm talking to people about God. It happens all the time. Most folks tell me that they love God. They love Him. They just love Him. And I say, oh really? Wonderful. What is it about Him that you love so much? And then quickly I find out that they've got the wrong God. They've got the wrong God. Uh, you see, the God that they love is a God of their own making. A God of their own imagination. A God who looks a whole lot like them. Now, to be fair, to be fair, to some degree, this is happening with all of us. <laughs> okay? God is so infinitely greater than we are that it is hard for us to get a good grasp of Him. But thankfully, He has given us an amazing gift. Amazing gift. It's the gift of His Word. And it is in this Word that God tells us who He really is. And He tells us what He's really like. In fact, that is the primary purpose of the Bible, is to reveal to mankind who God is and what He is really like. And so today, if you're new with us, we've just started a new series in the book of Exodus. We're going to go verse by verse through the whole book. Today we come to Exodus chapter 3, where God reveals to Moses who He really is. So let's turn now to Exodus 3, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. 1 through 14. Now, these verses might seem familiar to you. It's the same verses from last week. <laughs> but like I said, there's so much amazingness. Amazingness isn't a word, but um, you know what I mean. So many great things in this chapter, we can't leave it yet. <laughs> these verses are simply incredible. I, I told my wife, Catherine, I said, I think this is the most profound chapter in the Bible. And she said, well, you say that about every chapter in the Bible. I said, yes, but I actually mean it this time. I think Exodus 3 is the most profound <laughs> chapter in the Bible. It is awesome. So I didn't want to move on too quickly. There's just so many amazing things about it. Let's, let's dive in, shall we? Let's look at Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Verse 1. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. 
So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is God's word. So, The God who is revealed to Moses here in our text today is the God of fire. This is how God often appears in the Bible. When God comes on Mount Sinai, He comes as fire. When He leads the people of Israel through the desert, He leads them as a pillar of fire. The author of Hebrews says, Worship the Lord in reverence and in awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The famous Christian theologian Blaise Pascal, when he died, they discovered that inside of his coat was a document that he had sewed into the coat lining. And the document described a spiritual encounter that happened to him that changed his life. And this is what was written on the paper that he had sewn inside of his coat. Just one line, in all capital letters. Quote, The year of grace, 1654. Monday, the 23rd of November, from half past 10 in the evening until half past 12. Fire. End quote. <laughs> Fire. Now, it's important to know that Pascal was a Christian long before this encounter. So this is not his conversion experience. Like Moses, Pascal already believed in God. 
But God wasn't a fire to him. And when God became a fire to him, it changed his life. Now, what does this tell us about God? I mean, he could reveal himself to us in many different ways, right? So why does he reveal himself as fire? Well, let's dive into this further to see how the metaphor of fire helps us get to know the real God. Number one in your outline. Point number one. Fire shows us that God is who God is. God is who God is. What exactly is fire? What's well, very unique? You see, with water, you can stick your hand in the water. You can move your hand around and you can manipulate the water kind of any way you want, right? And with clay, for instance, you can mold clay and you can form it however you wish. And this is how most people view God. He's just water or clay that, you know, we can just change and mold and manipulate however we want. We can make him into our image. But God is not water or clay. Water and clay are changed by the toucher, right? But go ahead and stick your hand in a fire. And you'll quickly realize that the toucher is changed by the fire. You see, fire is what fire is. You don't change it. It changes you. And you know, here in our text today, when Moses asks God, what is your name? People for centuries have puzzled over God's response. They puzzled over this. God's response to Moses is confusing and unique. But, you know, the reason that folks have been confused by it is because they pull God's name out of the context of this story. And then they try to examine it on its own. And then it does become very difficult to understand what God is trying to say about himself with his name. But, what if you leave his name in this story? Just leave it there and then examine it. Well, then it becomes a whole lot easier to see what God is saying about himself with his name. So let's do that. Let's leave his name in there and let's examine it that way. When does God give Moses his name? Does he introduce himself with it? Nope. When does he give it to him? It's when God has told Moses his plan to use Moses to deliver the nation of Israel. And Moses doesn't like the plan. Like, at all. <laughs> Not one bit. Moses immediately pushes back against the plan. He says, uh, no offense here, God, but this is a dumb plan. Right? It's right here in the text. This is a dumb plan. Um, I'm not qualified for this. Pharaoh is not going to listen to me. Israel is not going to listen to me. Uh, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Right? He's got all this pushback against God. And God's response to Moses is, I am who I am. 
Notice, God does not say, I am who you want. What is God saying? He's essentially saying, Moses, you're unhappy because I turned out to be a different kind of God than you imagined. And I have a different plan than one that you would have put forward. But I am not a God of your invention. I am not a God of your imagination. I am not a God of water and clay. I am the God of fire. I am who I am. You don't change me. I change you, Moses. Now, I know that this is difficult to accept for modern people. I get it. <laughs> it's hard for a modern audience to accept what God says here. You know, I've talked to many folks over the years uh, who say, yeah, you know, I've tried, I've tried religion. I've tried it. You know, I've tried to organize Christianity out. Uh, I've tried the God thing. You know, but it just didn't work for me. You know, it just didn't work for me. Uh, it, it just didn't really fit my needs. Uh, and so I you know, I had to go with the truth that fit my needs. In other words, I want a God of water and clay. Water and clay. And I'll just search around until I find a God that fits exactly what I want Him to be. I'll mold God in my own image. But let's just think for a minute. Let's put our thinking caps on. And let's just think for one second about this. Let's think about this rationally. How could a God of your own making, a God who never disagrees with you, never contradicts you, how could he possibly help you when you most need him? You know, when you royally blow it. When you feel deep regret and guilt, what can a God that you invented do about it? When you feel like scum, when you feel like scum of the earth, how can a God that you made up pull you up out of the gutter, put his arms around you, and tell you that he loves you, and that you're valuable, and your life has meaning? And purpose. Well, a God that you invented cannot do that because he's not real. And so, here's my pro tip. That's a new thing kids say, right? Pro tip. Okay, pro tip, man. So let me give you, my wife is skeptical. I think it is something kids say now. Pro tip. She doesn't know. Pro tip. Here's my pro tip this morning. Okay, you ready? Stop looking for a God who meets your needs. That's my pro tip. Stop looking for a God who meets your needs. You won't find the real God that way. A God who is nothing more than a butler, who always says, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am, to you, is not a real God. Instead, I would advise you to start looking at the God of the Bible. The God who will make you mad. 
<laughs> the God who will challenge your view of yourself, of him, and the world around you. The God who will contradict you. Because at least then, when you find a God like that, you know you're dealing with a real God and not a figment of your imagination. And you say, okay, fine. I will look for the real God. I'll look for the God of the Bible. Fine. But a preacher, tell me, how exactly will I know if I found him? Well, that brings us to point number two in your outline. God is a paradox. God is a paradox. This is another way fire is so helpful. Fire is at the same time wonderfully beautiful and dangerously lethal. Right? At the same time. I mean, fire is mesmerizing. It's mesmerizing. Our modern world has indoor heating and air now. And yet almost every new home built has a fireplace in it. Why is that? Because we like to look at fire. <laughs> fire is attractive. It's mesmerizing. It's soothing. Just on a, on a cold night to snuggle up together and with a good book and a warm cup of cocoa and stare at the fire. It just does something to you, doesn't it? It's so beautiful. It's so warming, literally, physically, but also like warming spiritually somehow. There's something very attractive about fire. Fire is very attractive, but it's also very dangerous, isn't it? The same fire that mesmerizes you can kill you. The same fire that warms your home can burn your home to the ground. And the biblical view of God is exactly the same. Exactly the same. God is infinitely attractive and loving, and He is infinitely powerful and holy. But you see, the two kinds of gods who are out there in the marketplace of ideas that humans invent and try to put forward to us, try to sell us, well, those gods out there are either one or the other. Okay? They're either one or the other. They are either terrifyingly holy or they are melt-in-your-mouth sweet. But never both. Never both. Self-righteous religious people love the terrifying and demanding God. They love Him. <laughs> Their God is powerful and holy, but He is not attractive and beautiful. But on the other hand, the other kind of God that's out there in the marketplace is completely accepting, sweet, and gentle. But He is not holy, and He is not powerful. This is the Mr. Rogers God. He is very popular in our modern culture. People love the Mr. Rogers version of God because he is attractive, but he is not dangerous. He's not dangerous. But if you just kind of think for a second about this, just for a second, 
You'll see that both gods are obviously, obviously the result of human wish fulfillment. Obviously. And I'll show you how. On one hand, self-righteous religious people, they want an angry God of moralism. It's what they want, desperately want. Why? Because God's moral law gives them power. It gives them power. They're on a power trip. <laughs> They're on a power trip. You see, armed with God's moral law, they can shame others and control others with it. You see? And, best of all, they can shame and control God with it. God's moral law gives them ultimate power over their neighbor and over God. You say, well, wait a minute. How could it give them power over God? Oh, it gives them ultimate power over God. You see, because if they meet the demands of his moral law, then God owes them. God owes them. Right? I checked all the boxes, God. I did all the things. I was a really good boy this week. You owe me. You owe me a good life. You owe me a good job. You owe me health, wisdom, money, etc. You owe me. I checked your boxes, God. Now you owe me one. In a very real way, God becomes their slave. In this scheme, religious people can keep their thumb on their neighbor and their thumb on God. <laughs> it gives them a tremendous amount of power. Isn't that convenient? Isn't that convenient? But on the other hand, more progressive folks, those who want to uh, you know, come up with their own moral laws and live absolutely however they please in life, well, isn't it convenient that they have a God who just bashfully sits in the corner sucking his thumb and gives a thumbs up to any way they decide to live? Right? He has no power, no holiness, no moral law at all. He just sits in the corner with his thumb up to however you want to live. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> Isn't that convenient? Both gods are obviously the product of human wish fulfillment. But the true God, the God of the Bible, is burning both with holiness and burning white hot with love for us. He's both. He's a paradox. <laughs> he is a paradox, just like fire. But that's how you know you have the real God. That's how you know when he is wonderfully beautiful and attractive and also wonderfully terrifying <laughs> and dangerous. That's how you know you have the real God and not a God of your own invention. Because humans would never, ever, never invent a God like that. They would only invent one or the other. A 
hyper-moral God who's going around like a cosmic cop writing sin tickets. That's the God we would invent. Or a God who is weak and, and crouching in the corner, just giving a thumbs up to however we want to live. We would never create a paradox. But the God of the Bible, the God of fire, is a paradox. But this presents us with a problem. A pretty big problem, actually. If this is who God really is, if He is infinitely powerful and infinitely beautiful, we have a problem. And I think the author of our text today wants us to see this problem. And the author presents us with a riddle. A riddle. And you see, there's actually a bigger riddle here than the burning bush itself. There's a bigger riddle here than the nature of God, and the riddle is this. How can sinful humans possibly be in a relationship with a God like that? How? A God who is infinitely beautiful and infinitely holy. How could it happen? That brings us to our final point in your outline. Point number three, how we can know God. How we can know God. Look at verse five with me. Verse five. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. So when Moses first approaches the bush, what does God say? Come closer, Moses. I'd like to give you a big hug. Great to see you, big guy. Come on in. Is that what he says? Mr. Rogers' God does. That's exactly what Mr. Rogers' God does. But uh, we don't have a Mr. Rogers' God. We have a God of fire. And so this God says, and the Hebrew language here is very strong. It's actually kind of hard to tell how strong it is in the English. In Hebrew, it's very strong. God is yelling at Moses. He's yelling at him to stop. Don't come any closer. And when he says, take off your sandals, Moses, notice he doesn't say you're about to stand on holy ground. He says, you are currently on holy ground. Do not come any closer. Moses, you are standing in fatal territory, is what God is saying. And Moses is scared out of his mind. And he should be. <laughs> it's exactly the right reaction, Moses. He should be scared to death, and he is, because he is standing in fatal territory. Now, why do I say it's fatal territory? Because God is unimaginably holy. Unimaginably holy. And Moses is unimaginably sinful. That's not a good combo. That's a big, big problem. For Moses and for you and for me, it's a big problem. I mean, when God comes down on Mount Sinai, the text will say, we'll get there eventually, but it says, the text says that if a cow touched the mountain while God was on the mountain, the cow would die. The cow. Does God hate 
bovine animals? Why does the cow die? That's mean. That's rude. No, it's not mean and rude. Why does the cow die? Because God is a God of fire. A God of infinite power and holiness. And nothing unclean can touch him and live. Not you, not Moses, not me, not a cow. Nothing unclean can touch him and survive. And once again, I get that for the modern audience that we have sitting here today, this is hard for us to grasp because we have a hallmark greeting card understanding of God. We have a Mr. Rogers God. For us, you know, God's holiness just means he's a good guy. He's a good guy, you know. He's nice. He's inspiring. When he speaks, there's organ music playing in the background. God is holy. Isn't that sweet? But that's not what God's holiness means. That is not what holiness means. God's holiness means that he is infinitely above everything else. Infinitely so. The difference between God and the mightiest archangel and between God and the smallest ant is the same. The difference is the same. God is infinitely greater than everything and everyone. That's what his holiness means. It means he is infinitely pure and good. He is infinitely beautiful and valuable. He is infinitely powerful and glorious. So, the riddle is this. Why doesn't Moses melt like wax before him? Why? Why doesn't Moses die like the cow would die? I mean, Moses is a sinner like me and you. He's a complainer. Look at the text. <laughs> Look at it. He is openly questioning the God of the universe. Openly questioning his plan. So, if the ground is truly that holy... Why would taking his sandals off do any good? Moses should have disintegrated. <laughs> he should have disintegrated before the eternally self-existent and infinitely holy God. So why didn't he? Because there was someone else in the fire. There was someone else in the fire. Did you catch that? Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And they led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. You see, the angel of the Lord 
was in the bush. And it is the angel of the Lord who is mediating the presence of God. And we forget that because of how the text reads. You know, the the chapter reads, and God said this, and God said that, and God said this, and God said that. And that makes us forget about verse 2. Which clearly explains that God is speaking to Moses through the angel. Through the angel. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? What are you trying to say? I mean, there are lots of angels in the Bible. Yeah, there are. There are lots of angels in the Bible. But this isn't one of them. It isn't. This is no ordinary angel. How do we know? Two reasons. Number one, because any time in the Bible when people encounter an angel and they bow down to worship the angel, the angel refuses their worship. He refuses it. The angel says, get up, don't worship me, I'm just a creature like you. Get up. Okay? But here in our story today, this angel, when Moses takes off his sandals, which is an act of worship, the angel accepts the worship. He doesn't stop him. That's number one. Number two, God says the very ground that Moses is standing on is holy. The ground is holy. Now, why would the presence of an angel make the ground holy? It wouldn't. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the Bible where any other angel appears. When the Moses appeared to the Virgin Mary, when the angel appeared to the Virgin Mary, the angel did not say, watch out, Mary, you're on holy ground. No, the ground wasn't holy when that angel came to Mary. But this ground that Moses is standing on is. It is holy ground. So, how do we explain this? Who is this angel? Well, many years after this event, Jewish leaders were arguing with a young upstart preacher. And they say to him, How dare you contradict us? Don't you know? We are children of Abraham. Are you greater than Abraham? And the young preacher responded and said, Before Abraham was, I am. I am. Now, if that young preacher would have said, before Abraham was, I was, well, that would have been incredible. (laughs) He would have been claiming to be 3,000 years old. And you know what the religious leaders would have done? How they would have reacted to that? They would have laughed. They would have called him an idiot. And they would have walked away from him. What an idiot. But that's not what he said. What he actually said was far more absurd. If you go to John chapter 8, you'll see that he did not say, I was. He said, I 
am. I am. And how did the religious leaders respond? They immediately tried to kill him. Immediately. This wasn't funny to them. They immediately moved to kill him. Why? Because they knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming to be the very one who spoke to Moses in the fire. He was claiming to be the angel of the Lord. But more than that, he was claiming to be the I am. And so don't you see? Don't you see what our text is saying? Don't you see what the author is showing us is the answer to the riddle? The answer to the riddle is that it's only through a mediator that Moses could speak with an infinitely holy God. And it's only through a mediator that you and I can too. You see, the real God is far more holy and far more loving than any God we have invented. He is so holy and so loving that he sent us a mediator. He sent us his angel. He sent us his son, his one and only son. Not to bring the fire of judgment upon us, but to bear the fire of judgment for us in our place. In Exodus chapter 3, the angel is not consumed by the fire, but one day he would be. On a hill called Calvary, he will take the fire of God's wrath onto himself and he will be consumed by it for your sins and for mine. He will melt like wax before a holy God so that you and I, we can stand confidently before him. We can know this God and we can enjoy Him forever. Christ will melt before Him so that we can stand. We can stand with Him forever. The hymn writer puts it this way. There's a joyful message written in His Word to the soul, the sweetest music ever heard. Jesus is the great mediator. When before me all my years of sin arise, unto him in faith my trembling spirit flies. Jesus is the great mediator. On the cross he shed his precious blood for me, and from the grave he rose with saving victory. Jesus is the great mediator. This is God's word. This is God's promise to you and to me. 
we can stand confidently before our Creator with our heads lifted high. Why? Because Jesus is our great mediator.